six of our series, Prove It. We've been in this series uh, now for, for, for a while, and we've got a couple more weeks left. We're, we're about done, but we're working our way through the book of 1 John. And, and today, I, I just want to throw out kind of an observation that I, I think is true of most people. And that is that most of us never stop longing to be better people, do we? We, we always... We always want to, to be a little bit better than we are. There, there's always some aspect of our personality that we wish we, we could change. Um, a couple of weeks ago, maybe even a month ago now, I went into Barnes & Nobles. And uh, going into a bookstore is one of my favorite things. I don't, I'm not a big, avid reader, but I like the idea of reading. And I like books. And so like, I like to put books on my bookshelf, and it looks like I'm a lot smarter than I am. And so I always go in there and I'm just looking for kind of books that I can add to my bookshelf. But when you go into Barnes and Nobles, you don't even get into the, the, to the store before you get to the self-help section. Like, you know, you walk in the first, uh, the first set of doors and in between the first set of doors and the second set of doors, they've got this display of all of these self-help books. Uh, and like I said, you're not even in the store yet. And, and I'm just kind of looking through it because those things in, interest me because I think most of them are full of garbage but but anyway and, and I just got to looking through some of the titles of them and there were some really interesting titles like there was this one the personal development for dummies and I felt a little offended by that one I thought that's probably one that's on my level I should probably read that one and then there was reinventing yourself becoming a life change artist and I, that's one of those like buzzword type titles you know everybody wants to be a life coach and that kind of stuff now and so you can be a life change artist and I, this was probably my favorite. It was the most ominous. It said, change or die. I thought, there, there you go. That, that'll sell a book right there. Change or die. But you can go in the bookstore and you can find books that will help you get organized, that will help you improve your memory, that will make you more assertive, to stop procrastinating, to overcoming anger, to stop being late, even how to make people like you. If you're really committed to, to change, there is a 500-page volume that, that is called Building the Best You, a two-year discovery journal. Like, wow, who's got that kind of time, <laughs> right? If you don't have that kind of time, in which most of us don't, I don't think, uh, you can pick up a much thinner volume that, that promises to change almost anything in 21 days. I thought that was, that's more my speed, 21 days, let's go. And all of that sounds really simple, doesn't it, and, and, and promising. But then the question kind of looms is, that kind of change really possible? Is it really possible to, to become different than, than who you are, than who you've always been? You know, can an introvert become the life of the party all of a sudden? Can a procrastinator ever learn to work ahead? There's a psychologist that says, really, it, it's, it's not possible. He says this, he says, you can train a poodle to bark, but it'll never be a German shepherd. That's, that's true. So can we change who we are? I mean, deep down on the inside, can we change ourselves? And, and what I think is true for, for people in general, this desire to become a better person, it takes on a special meaning for those of us who follow Christ, who call ourselves Christians. Because we not only want to become better people, we want to become more like Christ. We don't want to become just better people, we want to become Christ-like people. So how does that happen? I mean, how do we become Christ-like? Think about this, especially if you've been a Christian for a long time. Think about this. You, you have certainly grown in your faith over the years, no doubt. You, you've made some progress in some areas, but there are still some things that you would like to change, right? Or at least some things that your spouse would like to change about you, right? I mean, all of us have that, right? I mean, just let's 
do a little experiment. I'm not going to ask you to, to like say anything, but just show of hands. How many of you have been a Christian for a long time? Let's say 20 years or more. Show of hands. You've been a Christian 20 years or more. All right, now keep your hands up. If, you are, if you've been a Christian for 20 years or more, and you still have something that you would like to change about yourself, that you would like to improve on as you follow Christ, keep your hand up. Yeah, like I didn't see any hands drop. I mean, the, the reality is, is that none of us have arrived. You can, you can put your hands down, thanks. We, none of us have arrived at that point. We're still not the Christ follower that, that we want to be. I mean, and, and sometimes, I get it, sometimes we're energized by the possibility that we can be something better, that we can be more like Christ. You know, and, and maybe when we, we, we get something right, you know, we're, we're, it, it really pumps us up and we're like, man, we, we are doing it this time. We're killing it. We are, we're on the right track. But other times, I mean, when nothing's going right, this idea of, of trying to be more Christ-like, it just it's, seems like a burden. It seems like a pipe dream. And, and, and sometimes we secretly, we, we wonder if it's even too late to change. Maybe if it's even worth the effort. And I say secretly wonder that because we don't say those things out loud, right? Because we've been taught, because we've been Christians for 20 years or more, we've been taught that those are not the things you say out loud, at least around other people. We, we keep those thoughts to ourselves. These are the questions that we all struggle with, no matter how long you've been a Christian uh, or, or how, how less you've been a Christian. We all struggle with these. If you could change one thing about yourself, just think about that. Again, I'm not going to ask you to, to say it out loud. But if you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? What would it be? And is that kind of change even possible? Is it realistic for people like you and me to, to imagine becoming like Christ someday? These are the questions that we're going to dig a little deeper into this morning in 1 John. Uh, last week we considered the doctrinal test of faith and we discovered this deep, deep truth that Jesus Christ was fully God and He's fully man and He's the only way to eternal life. We, we talked about how it, you can't have fully God without the fully human part and you can't have the fully human without the fully God part and that He is the only way to eternal life. And so... So we talked about that last week. That's the doctrinal test that we've talked about. These three tests uh, that John writes his letter around. The doctrinal, the relational, and the ethical test. And this week we're going to jump back into that ethical dimension of our faith. And I hope that we discover a, a deep hope. If you've got your Bibles, turn over to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be at the end of chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 28 and then we're going to read a couple of verses into chapter 3. And John, in this, this section of his letter, he introduces us to two new ideas, uh, at least for, for this letter. They're not new to John, he's already written about them in his Gospels, but, but they're new to this letter. And the, and the first new idea that he, he introduces us to is the second coming of Christ, the second coming of Jesus. Look at what he says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. He says, And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. In, in this one verse, John uses two distinctive New Testament words to describe the second coming of Jesus, the second coming of Christ. The first word is appearing. He says, so that when he appears. It, it's the same word that he used back in chapter 1 when he spoke about Christ's first coming. When In chapter 1 he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at with our hands and we have touched. This we proclaim the word of life, that life appeared. That, that particular word appearing, it, it describes the invisible becoming visible. 
Something hidden that's been revealed. Something unseen, now seen. Think about this. For thousands of years, for thousands of years the old, in the Old Testament period, God was, he was there, but he couldn't be seen. I mean, he, he was hidden, so to speak. He was always behind a pillar of uh, uh, fire or, or smoke on a mountain, something like that. But in Jesus, the invisible God becomes visible. He, he, he could be seen now. He could be heard. He could be touched. He, he could eat. I mean, there were all these things that, that you thought about God that, that you could never see. But now in Jesus, in the person, in the flesh, you were able to see all of these things. He, he, was, a, he was visible. And then just as all of God's followers got used to having God in the flesh with them, Jesus does something really remarkable. He disappears again. He, he ascends into heaven. And of course, he's still with his followers in his spirit, but again, he's invisible now. He, he's hidden. But someday, John says that he will be visible again. He will be revealed and we'll see him just as he is. The second word that John uses here in this, in this passage is the word coming. He says, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed at his coming. The, the word here is used to describe a king who's riding into one of his territories to be welcomed and honored by his subjects. Because remember, you know, this, in the ancient, this is the ancient world that, that this was written in. And in the ancient world, there was no CNN or Fox News that, you know, just live streamed 24 hours news coverage of, of a king and what he was doing. You know, there was no uh, photographs to look at. There were no YouTube videos of, of the king's latest speech. Most people would live their entire lives without ever actually seeing the king. To, to put that in perspective, let's do another show of hands. How many of you in this room, or if you're watching online you can, and you, th this is you, you can type it in the, the chat. How many of you have, just by a show of hands, have actually seen a, a president of the United States while he was the president of the United States? That not, not like you saw him on the news or anything, but like you were in the same vicinity, you saw them in person. Anybody, a couple of you? A couple. Not very many, though. Not nearly as many as hands that were raised a few minutes ago. I've seen one in nearly 40 years. I've seen one. I was standing on a street sidewalk in Washington, D.C., and Bill Clinton was the president, and his motorcade went by. And we saw him. He had the window down, and he was waving to people in the second limo. That's as close as I've ever been to a living president. Most of us will not ever see in person the president of the United States. And so, to put that in perspective, when a king in the ancient world came to visit one of his cities, it was a big deal. It was a, it was a spectacular event. People would line the streets and there was just this energy and a buzz about them. You know, they'd be like, hey, that's him, or that's him, you know, that, that's his camel, or that's his donkey. You know, we, we look for the limo, but that, they were looking for the camels. And, and they, would, they would oftentimes go out and meet the, the king and his entourage and, and welcome them into the city. They, they would go out, you know, for miles before they actually got there and then bring them into the city. Which is kind of interesting to me. It raises an interesting possibility about the, the so-called rapture of the church. When, when Paul, the Apostle Paul, he describes the church being caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Is he describing the rapture of the church to heaven? Or is he describing the church going to meet Christ to accompany him on his triumphant return to earth? This is something to think about. It doesn't, doesn't matter. But in any event, in this letter, John wants his readers to, to, to have no doubt that Jesus, who was brutalized and, and humiliated on the cross, who was eventually killed on the cross, and who 
was raised to life and then vanished uh, earth again amid all kinds of rumors and speculation. He wants his readers to be absolutely positive that one day he's going to return in power and in glory for all the world to see. His readers need to know that. Because remember, this is a group of people who were two or three generations removed from the, the historical Jesus. It had been 50 plus years since Jesus had walked the earth. They had never seen him. And they needed to know that one day he would come again and be seen and heard and experienced. And we need to know that as well because we are 50 plus generations removed. And we're 2,000 years removed from the historical Jesus. And I know it's hard to believe sometimes that God really walked on the earth and, and in, in the person of his son. And it's harder still to believe sometimes that, that he's going to come again to be seen and to be heard and be experienced by, by all people everywhere. But John wants us to be absolutely sure of this. That this will happen. That one day Jesus is coming again. What, what strikes me about Jesus's, uh, about John's description of, of Jesus' second coming though is, is how positive and how inspiring he is. He wants us to look forward to that day. He, he uses words like confident and unashamed. In chapter 3, verse 3, he describes it as our hope. I don't know about you, but that's a very different uh, idea of how I think most people in the church view the second coming of Christ. Especially if you grew up in the church um, and, and were, were, you know, I'm not a fire and brimstone type preacher. But if you went to a church where they had one of those, you probably have a very different view about the second coming of Christ. Because the second coming of Christ for, I think, a lot of people in the church today is a source of fear, not hope. PBS did a program one time called uh, Religion in America. And they showed vintage, uh, video footage of Billy Graham's crusades back in the 50s and 60s. And I, I was struck by how central the theme uh, and, and doctrine of the second coming of Christ was to his message. And by the urgency in which he, he brought that message and, you know, he would wag his finger at the crowd and he would warn them that they better be ready for, for the return of Christ because he could come back at any moment. He would say, are you ready to meet Christ? And he would say it with, with you know, a fire and a passion and an intensity in his eyes. You know, I've heard sermons over, over my life, and I'm sure you have too, from preachers uh, on, on the book of Revelation. And they've got these scary looking charts and even scarier words like tribulation and Armageddon and phrases like the mark of the beast. And when I was in middle school, we, we would sing a song at camp, um, and, and I think it was a DC Talk song, but, but the lyrics to it were, were this, it said, children died, well that's a great opening lyric, isn't it? Children died, the days grew cold, a piece of bread could buy a bag of gold, I wish we'd all been ready. Two men walking up a hill, one disappears, and one's left standing still, I wish we'd all been ready. Then it says, there's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. Well, you get a bunch of middle school kids around a bonfire and, and get somebody that has some intensity in their preaching and, and just, you know, warning them that, you know, Jesus is coming back. And if they're not ready, they're all going to go to hell. They're all ready to come to Jesus at that moment. Well-intentioned youth ministers and ministers have used the second coming to scare, uh, to scare Christians into godly living. You know, what if Christ comes back and catches you doing something you're not supposed to be doing? Joe Dirt's mama would ask him, is that what you want to be doing when the Lord comes back? If you've never seen Joe Dirt, you need to watch Joe Dirt. You'll get it. But, but he would, you know, that's kind of the idea that most people have of the second coming. We, we know the second coming is supposed to be a good thing, but it often inspires more fear than it does hope. Let me ask you, how do you feel about the second coming? 
Does it fill you with hope or with fear? Are you ready to meet Christ if he should come back today? John wants us to look forward to that day with great joy and anticipation, not fear and worry and, and trepidation. And, and I think our view of, of the second coming, if, if we're more concerned about rapture and tribulation and war and all that stuff, and, and we're worried about an antichrist, that's everybody's worry about, about the end times is the antichrist. We, we don't have to be worried about an antichrist. We should be more focused on the king who is coming back. That's where our focus on on the end times should be, that there is a king who is coming back. We should should look forward to that day with with joy and hope and anticipation. And in the next couple of verses, John tells us why. Look at, uh, go back to chapter 2, verse 29. He says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is righteous is born of him. With, With this verse here, John introduces his second new idea to this letter. Second birth. Uh, Up until now, he has described a relationship with God in terms of fellowship and and belief. But now he's using the language of birth and family. And once again, this isn't a new idea to John. He talked about this in his gospel. It's central to his gospel. Remember his conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He told Nicodemus, he said, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And then he goes on to explain that, that just as every person has to be born physically into a human family uh, the first time, every person must also be born into God's family spiritually. The, the first birth results in, in an earthly life. The second birth results in eternal life. So how does all of that take place? Well, John explains it in chapter 1 of his gospel. He says this in John chapter 1, verse 12. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Now I'm going to make a statement, and I want you to hear what I'm saying. Don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? But contrary to popular opinion, we are not all children of God. At least not automatically. Not just because we're, we're humans. We're, we're not children of God just because we, you know, we are living on earth. We become children of God when we're born again from above. When we turn to Christ in repentance and faith. And when we identify with Christ through death, burial, and resurrection. Through baptism. And that, that new life that we're given there. That's when we are born a second time. That's when we become children of God. And so this idea of second birth, it isn't new for John. But... But as he reminds his readers of it in, in this letter, he's, he's struck by the, the beauty of it. There, there is something really beautiful about this truth. And, and think about maybe the first time that you heard the gospel and, and you were struck by the, the just overwhelming con- feeling that, that God was doing something good for you in your midst. Um, I think that's what happens with John here. He, he, he just kind of rediscovers this truth that, that he is born again, that he's a child of God, that that's who he was created to be. And so he just kind of bask in the glory of it and, and the wonder of it you know there are there are times when and i'll be working on a sermon and and i'll be be doing some research or studying or something and, or just writing something and something hits me a different way you know it could be something that i've a, a, a biblical passage that i've read thousands of times and then i read it this time and there's something that just stands out and it just strikes me a different way and and in those moments a lot of times what i just want to i just want to like Quit typing and just sit there and just kind of think and meditate about what, what I've discovered. 
Because it's a beautiful thing to discover things about God. And, and that's what happens right here to John, right here in this middle, middle of his letter. 1 John uh, chapter 3, verse 1, he says, How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us. He's talking about becoming a child of God. He's just given us this realization that that's who we can be. And then he, just, he tells us how great it is. He says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. So like he can hardly believe that, that that's the truth. But it is. And if that's what we are, children of God, then we have no reason to fear His coming. On the contrary, we should look forward to it. You ever see those, I'm sure you have, the, like the, the YouTube videos of military members returning home and they have those reunion videos. Um, I'm not going to show any of them because I cry through all of them all the time. Um, and I, and I don't feel like I'm alone in that, but again, I don't want to stand up here and just boohoo all over the stage this morning. So, so we're not going to show any, but, but that's kind of the idea that I want you to have uh, of this. That, you know, these military families that come home and, and, and the families are standing on the tarmac. They're just waiting for their, their husband or their wife, their mother, their father to get off that, that troop transport and to walk out on that tarmac so that they can run to them and hug them and just squeeze them and embrace them for as long as they want, right? To be able to, to hug and embrace them and just to, to have that realization that you are home, that you, ha you have come back, you, you made it back. And you ever notice in those videos... If you watch them long enough, if they shoot them long enough, what happens after the embrace? Like after the, the wife and the kids have run and hugged their husband and, and dad, what happens after a few moments of that? They all, almost without fail, they just kind of lean back and they look at this person. At this person that's come back. They just, they just want to take it in and, and look at them. And, and see their smile and see their eyes and just, just be so grateful that they've returned. In the same way, if we're children of God, we look forward to Christ's return. We don't have to worry about being left behind. We don't have to run for cover. We'll welcome Him. We'll behold Him. We'll, we'll want to embrace Him and, and just kind of step back and look and see the beauty and the fullness and the glory of God if, if we are children of God. But notice I said if. If you're a child of God. And that's a big if. Billy, Billy Graham was right about that. If, if you've never been born of God, then that second coming of Christ, it is a scary proposition. Y your first step to becoming a better person, the person you long to be, is to invite Christ to be your Savior, to, to give your life over to Him. But as John is writing this, though, an, an even more wonderful thought comes to, to his mind. Uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he, he says this, when Christ returns, not, we'll not only see Him, which will be great. It, it's it's going to be great to see Christ. But he said, we'll not only see him, we'll be like him. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. So we don't know exactly what that's going to look like yet. What, what we're trying to be yet. But we know that when he appears, when he comes back, we shall be like him. For we shall see him just as he is. You see, when you're somebody's child, you, you belong to them. You resemble them. You, you can't help it. You, you carry their DNA. You carry their genetics. Even, even uh, adoptive children, they, they start to pick up on the personalities and the habits and the traits of, of their adoptive parents. So, so it's not even just a biological thing. When you're with somebody, excuse me, when you become somebody's child, you start to become like them. I, I ran across just a, a fascinating story 
from the, the late 60s, early 70s about a pair of identical twins who were separated at birth by, and they were adopted by different families. They lived about 40 miles apart. They didn't know the other person ever existed. And at age 39, they met each other for the very first time. And as they met, they discovered just some incredible similarities between them. Both of them had been named James by their adoptive parents. In school, both men liked math and hated spelling. Both of them were married twice, first to women named Linda, and then second time to women named Betty. Both of them had sons that they had named James Allen. Both of them owned dogs named Toy. Both of them were chain smokers, Salem's. Both had high blood pressure. Both drove Chevys, both worked in law enforcement, and both, worked, and both vacationed on the same beach in Florida. Now, I don't know how to explain all of that, other than just to say that it illustrates the power of family likeness. It gets passed from one generation to the next. And so when we've been born of God, we have the life of God within us. We will be like Him. But it's not just DNA that gets passed along. It's the values and the habits and the, and the passions of that family that get passed along too. I mean, if, if your last name is Manning, you probably throw a football. If, if your last name is Kennedy, you probably know something about politics. If your last name is Clooney, you're probably involved in, in some sort of show business. And if your name is Christian, you're destined to be like Christ. It's in the genes. It's who you are. L look back at verse 29. He says, if you know that he is righteous... You know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. John, John uses this language of begetting, of, of parents imparting life to a child. But, but likeness, the, the, the family traits, if we've been born of God, we have the righteous gene. We, we inherited this propensity, this capacity for doing good and for doing the right thing. If you are a child of God, and look, this is not exclusive to children of God, but, but it's important and valuable to children of God. If you are a child of God, you have the capacity and the ability to do good. Unfortunately, we still have that old nature with us too. The, the sinful nature that we inherited from Adam and Eve. And I get it, it's a struggle sometimes to live by the new nature rather than the old one. But the fact remains that we are now God's children. We have His life, His nature at work within us. So, so becoming like Christ isn't just a possibility. It's even better than that. It's a promise. I mean, this idea that we want to become like Christ, that's what we're striving to be. But it's not just a possibility. It's a promise. It's what we've been promised by God. Look again at verse 2. He says, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Right now in this life, we struggle to be like Christ. That's partly because we deal with the, the sinful nature. But it's also because we see him through, through a, a dark glass, to, to use Paul's language. We don't always see clearly the, what Jesus would say or do in a given situation. We can't always hear him over the noise of our world or, or the promptings of our temptations and the simple nature that we, we have. Sometimes we lose sight of, of Jesus completely. But someday, someday we will see him face to face in all of his glory. And then, in that moment, we will be like him. We will be like him. We will become the people that we long to be, the, the people that we were born to be when we were born of God. And that should give us hope. 
I mean, look at verse 3, chapter 3, verse 3. He says, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Notice what John is saying here. He's saying the hope of Christ doesn't, doesn't just encourage us to hang in there. It actually changes us. It shapes us into who we are to become. It, it, it molds us to, to the people that God has created us to be. Let, let me illustrate what I mean by that, by, by this. You know, Queen Elizabeth just died. There's been... Uh, a lot of written written about her in the last couple of uh, weeks, and and because of her death, there's also been a lot written of, and, and talked about the line of succession. So you all know that Prince William and Prince Harry are the sons of now King Charles and 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 Princess Diana. They are the grandsons of of Queen Elizabeth, and as such, they could one day sit on the throne of Great Britain. From the day they were born, that possibility. That, that destiny has shaped them. Every aspect of their life, their, their schooling, their friendships, their families, their life, their hobbies, their military service have all been shaped by the possibility of being king someday. You see, when you call somebody a prince, you're not just describing who they are today. You're also describing who they could be someday. And in the same way, when the Bible calls, calls you and me a child of God, it's not just a declaration of who you are right now, but of who you are becoming and of who you will be one day. That, that knowledge, that destiny, it, it purifies us. John says it shapes us. It compels us to live every day of our lives in anticipation of that day that we will be like Him. I mean, I don't know that it gets much better than that, 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 that there's this promise of a, of a future date that we will be like Christ. I want to be like Christ right now, but I, I don't get it right enough. I just, I, I mess up way too often, and I know that's probably not what you want to hear your preacher say, right? But, but I screw up way too often to be like Christ. But there's a day coming, there's a day coming when I will be exactly like Christ. And there's a day coming when you, if you are born of God, you will be like Christ as well. So how does this transformation into Christ-likeness, this purification from, from all the sin take place? How does it happen? Well, it's certainly not automatic. You have to act towards it. But I'll tell you this, it's not just a matter of gritting your teeth and bearing down and just trying harder. It's not just that either. It's really just a matter of spending as much time with Christ as possible. I mean, that's how it works in families, right? Kids become like their parents by, by hanging around them, by spending the day in and day out with them, by watching them do life together. You know, the, the Manning boys, Eli and Peyton, they were born with some good DNA, but they learned the game of football by hanging around their Hall of Fame dad, by playing catch in the backyard, by watching games together, by, by hanging around the sidelines until one day they became what they were born and bred to be, NFL quarterbacks. In the same way, the, the, the best way to become like Christ is to spend time with Him. Spiritual formation isn't a matter of trying harder. It's a matter of getting closer. I, I think that's important, so let me say that again. Spiritual formation isn't a matter of just trying harder. It's not just a matter of gritting your teeth and saying, I'm going to do better, I'm going to be better, I'm, I'm going to do all of this. It's not just a matter of that. It's a matter of getting closer. It's a matter of relating to Christ as much as possible. It's about spending time with Him in the morning, at the end of the day, talking to Him as you make your way through your day, worshiping Him each Sunday, hanging out with His people, joining Him in His work around the world, because the more that we're with Him, the more we will be like Him. So what's that mean for us? It means there's hope. It means that it's never too late to change, to grow. 
It means that day by day we are becoming the person that we long to be, the person that we were born to be when we put our faith in Christ and the person that we will one day be when we see Christ face to face. Whether you've got many years or just a few years left, whether it happens by death or it happens at Christ's return, you will one day be fully conformed to the image of God's Son. And you will live and you will reign with Christ forever. And that same hope is available to everyone who's been born, uh, born of God through faith in Christ. And it's a deep hope that can carry us through, through our entire lives, through, through dry times and difficult seasons and disappointments with ourselves and with, with each other. It's a hope that sustains our struggle with sin and the fallenness of this world. That life, that hope, it can be yours if, if you've been born again through faith in Christ. Remember, you can teach a poodle to bark, but he'll never be a German shepherd. You can teach yourself to be good. You can buy every self-improvement book on the, on the shelf. You can grit your teeth and try harder. But the only way for, for us, for a person that lives in this fallen world, to become a child of God to, to, to be born, is to be born of God through faith in Christ. And once that happens, once that happens, then becoming a better person is, is just more about being like Christ. It's about spending more time with Him, spending as much time as possible with Him, and looking forward to the day of His return. Back in high school, I had a, I had a teacher named Mr. Garrett. Mr. Garrett was a young guy, and, all, and most all the kids liked him. Um, because he wasn't a, an incredibly tough teacher. In fact, Mr. Garrett taught sociology and he would tell everybody on, in his class, he didn't do it in all of his classes, but in the sociology class, he told everybody on the very first day of class that everybody in this class will get a B or better. You're going to get a B or better in this class. If you just, he said, my job is to teach you sociology and that's what I'm going to do. And we're going to cover a lot of material. And there are going to be two tests. There's going to be a midterm and a final. But I promise that if you show up for class and you do the few things that I ask you to do, you're going to get a B or better. And I can tell you that I looked around that class when he said that. And there were all kinds of slackers and jokers in that class, and I might have been one of them. And I remember looking around and thinking to myself, but I, I was a decent student, so, so I, I, he told me I was going to get a B. I was pretty confident of that. But I remember looking around at some of the other people in that class I thought, there's no way they're going to get a B in this class. They've never gotten a B in their life. They can't even spell B. There is no way. But day by day, Mr. Garrett walked us and talked us through sociology. And day after day, those kids came to class and they did what he asked. And sure enough, everyone in that class got a B or better. You see what happened? The promise of getting a B, it inspired us, it purified us. Even the slackers and the jokers, they showed up for class and they did their homework. So in the end, Mr. Garrett didn't just give us a B, we grew into them. We became what he told us we would be. In the same way, Christ promises that if we will just stay with him, if we will keep showing up and if we will do what he asks, we will become the people that we long to be and that we were born to be. The people that we will ultimately be when he returns, like him, if you've been born of God. Let me pray for us.